Hello. Here with ben. Fiona. She's very sensitive, very delicate. Welcome to the playlist where we talk about movies and TV shows that are worth your time. I'm Fiona Williams. I'm Ben Nguyen. Yes, long-time listener, first-time co-host. Yeah, it's very exciting. It is very exciting. Welcome, welcome. Uh, what are we going to talk about today, Ben? We're talking about the HBO miniseries Chernobyl, the Palm d'Or winning Parasite, and Fee, you got to chat with the director, Bong Joon-ho. Mm-hmm. And then we'll be discussing what we've been watching. But first, Chernobyl. And uh, Ben, you've seen a fair bit more of this series than I have. Um, Tell us about it and what you think. Well, in 1986, the world was rocked by a catastrophic nuclear accident at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in what is now Ukraine, but was then part of the Soviet Union. The five-part HBO miniseries, which started on Foxtel Showcase last week, retells the story of the disaster fairly chronologically from the panicked moments after the explosion in Reactor 4 through to the eventual revelations of how the disaster occurred. It plays out like a mixture of documentary and science fiction horror as we see plant technicians, firefighters, bureaucrats and hospital workers work through the confusion and respond to the creeping realisation of the scale of what's happened and the devastating consequences of exposure to radiation. The pain is unimaginable. In three days to three weeks, you're dead. Jared Harris, Stellan Skarsgård and Emily Watson lead the cast as scientists and government officials, ordered to manage the crisis and solve the mystery of what caused it. But actually, the ensemble is as important with a mix of unknowns and character actors playing the everyday workers who in many cases gave their lives in order to prevent further harm. I thought this was a really powerful and affecting piece of TV. What did you think about it, Fee? Um, well, I have only seen the first episode. I'll disclose that from the top. You've seen it all, have you? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it has mostly been the unknowns that you're talking about. Stellan Skarsgård hasn't come into it yet or mm. Emily Watson. Which is an interesting choice in yeah, itself, I think. For sure. Some of those um, bigger names coming in later. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's banking on you staying, mm. which I think I will. I did find it definitely intriguing and foreboding and very moody. I've got to say I'm not quite... 100% locked onto it just yet. I will watch more just to see how it actually works as a full series. I think it really set up the mood well and the dread of these people walking, <laughs> you know, throwing themselves literally into the fire almost to to investigate what the problem is when you just know the horrendous circumstances they're, they're subjected to there. Mm. So, Well, see, I was gripped right from yeah. the get-go. I think what really grabbed me, I thought it was a really smart decision. I feel like this, this kind of drama you'd often see the build-up, the lead-up, and you'd, the, yeah. you'd make that decision to see into the characters' lives, their sort of normality before the disaster. But we're thrown immediately into the confusion when no one's quite sure what's happened. Mm-hmm. And so that just puts you on that footing of panic and as the wheels of that bureaucracy begin to turn, the concerns about you know suppressing the truth of what's really happened, which is the theme that runs under the series. And it was like a horror movie. I, I felt, mm. I, you know, I, I think almost not too far away from, you know, the, the kind of inspiration for something like a Godzilla flick. Yeah, sure. Well, it reminded me of the China Syndrome, obviously, which is a similar kind of like mm. the, the great 70s movie, which I think 
is a reference here. It has to be. <laughs> it mm. looks really similar in some ways. Yeah, for me, those character moments, the horror of the individual and the risk they're putting themselves in, knowing full well, following orders, etc. that was far more effective for me than, say, the political scenes where I know what they were saying with the scene, but I, almost like you could see the the strings or it just didn't convince me in those moments. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. I thought uh, one choice that the show made, which I was fascinated by, was the decision to have it play out in British accents. Yeah. So, you know, we do get a little bit of subtitled Russian in some of the archival clips that are interspersed, but otherwise, you know, we've got British accents, a number of regional accents thrown in. So, for example, later on there's a team of coal miners and the leader is a Scot. Mm. Um, So part of me thought that, you know, I, I would have quite liked to have seen this in subtitled Russian. I think that what it does do is bridge the gap between cultures. We're not necessarily seeing, you know, and, and because that, that does become such a big part of it, the the wheels of the bureaucracy, we're not necessarily seeing this as an effect of communism, but actually it's it's something that could play out in any public administration. For sure. And the comparisons to present day, you know, arguments over climate change and other other ways that this show could resonate. These could be conversations that I'm sure they are conversations that are being had these days. So yeah, I understand that point. Um, it was a bit like Death of Stalin, if you saw that when Armando Inucci last year did the film about the Death of Stalin, literally, friend of the show. Mm. And uh, Michael Palin, also friend of the show, <laughs> it was a big double episode, that one, uh, he was talking about the decision to have British accents and he was quite happy to do it that way, not least because he didn't want to be doing a dodgy Russian yeah, accent. Yeah, well, that's the other, that's the old school way of doing Very it, much. kind of hunt for the Red October. Yeah, right. So I don't know. I understood why they did it. It was also the use of the accents and the very plummy for the uh, the bureaucrats, but <laughs> the mm. lower class, you know what I mean? Like it just it was a little bit hokey, but also it's set in the 80s and that's how it would have been shot in an 80s <laughs> <laughs> miniseries. So... Yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure where oh, I land on that. Oh, don't I, I, dislike it, but yeah, still trying to work out my feelings on that one. I think you're being really tough on it. I, I think mm. um, one thing that did interest me though, so the uh, writer-creator Craig Mazine. Yeah. So his background, and I, I would not have had Curious. any understanding of, of this watching the show, and obviously he's done a huge amount of research in order to piece this together. No doubt. But he's predominantly come from comedy, so he wrote the Hangover sequels and uh, a couple of the Scary Movie sequels. Right, yeah, and a Jason Bateman movie, Identity Thief. Um, <laughs> yeah, so which is how I know his name. <laughs> so to see him attached to this prestige potboiler social drama, yeah, it's a curious leap, but, hey, we've all got different talents. <laughs> it just was, huh, <laughs> what do you know? It's like Will Ferrell leading the cast here. I mean, he does great drama too, but yeah, it's a curious sidetrack in a career, but it's clearly working out for him. This is doing gangbusters, isn't it? This, this it's, it's been a been a big hit. And I think um, it's, it's kind of interesting for Australia because it started playing out in May overseas and Foxtel Showcase only now catching up and, mm. and putting the episodes out. But actually what Foxtel did do is um, fast-track the episodes on their on-demand surface. So depending on who you ask, they've either been caught out or they did the right thing by fans by releasing it early. But I think one thing that is interesting is it's been talked about a lot and that word of mouth has really driven its success, but I haven't heard people talking about the cast. It really is about the story that it's telling. Yeah. Do you think there was a lack of awareness about Chernobyl that this has kind of 
made some people realise this actually happened? Like, I don't know, I can't tell if it's people are reacting to the event and this dramatised version of what happened and it's, oh, my God, this happened. I don't know, I can't quite get a read. I think some people may be discovering that this actually happened, (laughs) whereas I'm old enough to have seen the news as a kid. But Yeah, I think it it probably just depends kind of where you fit about whether this was something that you lived through and and that's your way into it. Mm. I mean, I do think that it very deliberately feels like a sci-fi horror film mm. and that's that for some younger audiences who didn't live through it that that's that's kind of what they're going to get out of it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so on the real world connection, SBS Viceland is actually going to be having a documentary about Chernobyl on the 25th. Yep, it's a, it's a program about the new cover that went up over the reactor plant last year given that the original cover was beginning to break up and there was risks of radiation leakages. So, I mean, it it really was an amazing project just to prevent further disaster. Yeah, right. So that's Building Chernobyl's Megatomb on SBS Viceland, Tuesday the 25th at 9.30pm. So next up, we're going to be talking about Parasite, which is the new film by Bong Joon-ho, friend of the show, Bong Joon-ho. I didn't mean that to rhyme, but there we are, Um, (laughs) who directed Okja. And this film won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival in May. Acclaimed. Acclaimed, yes, award-winning, all of that. And it has just won the Sydney Film Prize at the Sydney Film Festival. And Director Bong, as he is known, was out here for the uh, Sydney Film Festival and we have an interview with him coming up very shortly. And I love this film. I just want to say off the top of the segment how much I love this film. It's one of my favourites of the year thus far. It is a biting social satire about, um, I don't want to say too much because I think part of the fun of watching this film is just watching it unravel. I was tying myself up in knots as I was watching it because it is darkly, darkly funny but also very suspenseful. So it's on that edge of laughing and then... Oh, I can't wait to see it. I know. Am I building it up enough? I'm sold. (laughs) We got one director. (laughs) Uh, I dare say this one's going to do pretty well. So it's about a South Korean family who... They're just eking out, barely eking out a living. They're quite poor. The first scene is of them trying to get a free Wi-Fi signal around the house. So it's kind of a from the restaurants above. Oh, we've all been there. Haven't we? Yeah, I know. (laughs) And uh, there's a certain set of circumstances. The son gets the opportunity to tutor a very rich kid and uh, it's through that connection to this ultra-rich family that maybe the name Parasite might uh, Ah, make some sense. I get it. eh? So it is wonderful and... um, there's a lot to talk about, a lot of great it, – it's stylistically beautiful the way it's shot and the use of this house. It's mostly set within this architecturally designed house that, that is very important as you watch it. But, Fee, how do you think it ranks up against Director Bong's other films? Well, it's my favourite, I have to say. Wow. I'm just racking my brain. But, yeah, well, he did Snowpiercer. Cool. I know, mm. be cool. But I think it – because of this social satire, like he does it so well and he tr- he did it mm. as well with Snowpiercer. So if you remember the Long Train mm. movie and that was a social class as, you know, literally in the you know, on the train, the carriages were all. They're making a TV show of that. Oh, are they mm. now? Well, we can review we that can, when it yes. comes around. That one, it was smart as they all are. I mean, good Lord. But it was a bit more fantasy and a bit, uh, I don't know, I wasn't as 100% locked mm. onto it. As, this as, is maybe a bit more grounded? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Mm. And there's a this one mixes tone and genre, which we do actually talk about. He um, was very flattered that someone said he's his own genre now because he um, cherry picks from all the others. 
Yeah, and Okja I thought was very delightful with the story of the pig and, you know, that that has social... Goddamn cute pig. Yeah, right. It is curious to me that this one won the Palm d'Or when last year the Japanese Mm. film Shoplifters Mm. won the Palm d'Or, which this could be, albeit a different genre, Yeah. A sequel, like it could be that little family oh. grown up because that's about a little family of little because the kids are young. Wow. Um, Someone better start making the third in the series. I know. If you want the Palm Dawn next year, you better have a 20-something <laughs> or, you know, uh, an older family of grifters. Yeah, I think it's just interesting that this kind of film, one was Japanese, next year it's Korean and they're both about uh, people from a lower class grifting and um, feeding off richer yeah. Families, um, yeah. yeah, and just the be- the better off. I think it's you know it's clearly something that is in the minds of filmmakers at the moment, and they're making beautiful films about it because I love Choplifters too. Well, I just can't wait to hear what director Bong had to say about it. Let's... So why don't I shut up and let's hear from him? Fantastic. <laughs> and uh, so I did speak to director Bong via his translator. Thank you so much for your time. Um, it's a real thrill to talk to you. I guess. Good place to start. You know, with your films, quite often they're big epic themes and big, big moments. But with this one, it's all about concealment and small moments. I'm just curious how you balance that. And was that a challenge for you to do these very tiny moments with, with the characters? I wanted to uh, make a film uh, with a universal theme, but the way that you look at it is uh, look at it through um, as if you look at it through a microscope and you wanted to look very, very closely and precisely to our, um, at our everyday life. And the way you show sort of this strange late capitalism, sort of the world we live in and the social, the social economic um, situation, I, can we talk more about um, your fascination with that and sort of what, what you wanted to come through in the film? Um, I um, started writing this screenplay in 2013 when, uh, during the post-production of the film uh, Snowpiercer. And it has a similar theme. It's in, it happens in a big train and the very uh, first part of it, there's uh, wealthy people living and in the tail section there are poor people living like Chris Evans was in there as well. But while filming that movie, I felt like it's sci-fi film and I had to work in that frame. I didn't feel like, you know, I felt some sort of like cramped feeling. So afterwards, I wanted to make a film that's more realistic in a realistic setting. And as Korean, I wanted a, to make a film that's that looks like it's, it might be happening in our real life. Yeah, that's, you know, and then I wanted to show it uh, like very raw through that. Yeah. Yeah, very effective. Um, it's very raw. Um, and the way you balance the humour with the suspense, um, mm. like it's darkly funny, um, but also it's like nail-biting and yeah. suspenseful. Yeah. Um, how do you do that so well? So, yeah, how do you balance out if you can articulate that? <laughs> Actually, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it just happened whenever I write a script or whenever I shoot the movie. And, I get asked uh, quite frequently about how do you mix or shift genres. But to be very, very honest, I don't know. It's not of my intention. (laughs) 
So after the Cannes uh, Film Festival, one of the reviews, I, I don't quite remember exactly, but I think it was maybe in The Wire, one of the comments was that Bong Joon-ho has become a genre himself. And to me, it was the best compliment ever. And from that time on, I thought, like, whenever I get asked this question, I would use this quotation. And I guess on the suspense, it reminded me a little bit of, you know, in Psycho with Hitchcock, where um, yeah. the, the car is being submerged yeah. and you're, for a second, it's yeah. like he's going to get caught, but he's the bad guy. So you, you, know, you shouldn't <laughs> get caught, but you side with him. In, there's those moments within this film as well, sort of like they're, they're doing the wrong thing and mm. they should be getting caught, but also our allegiances are with them. So how you switch allegiances and how you've built empathy for them because, you know, we've seen they're not doing it just to be malicious. They actually, mm. this is an opportunity for them. So incorporating the little bit of empathy slash sympathy maybe for, for the characters. Um, mm. Can we talk a little more about that? <laughs> Obviously, the characters, they commit fraud and crime. There is no denial of it. And when you look at it from the judges or police point of view, it's pretty obvious. But from the audience point of view, you sort of feel very close to them. And due to familiarity and they're kind of cute and they're not perfect, they make mistakes. So in that uh, character, you slowly open your mind. So you sort of feel like, oh, I don't want them to, court, to get caught. And then you feel like you're committing the crime together. But I think that's the the beauty, dangerous kind of a dangerous beauty of the film, and it, you don't really have to look at it through the judges or the police's uh, eyes. But I think that's the uh, according to director Bong, it's a, a dangerous, attractive attraction of film. Yeah, makes you question where your moral white compass is. I love it. Um, and. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask, we, when we spoke about Okja, um, you mentioned you know, you're thinking of the movements of a dog in, in the way you do yeah. Okja. Obviously, there's three dogs in this, and um, I just love the way they steal the scenes. You can tell you're a dog lover. <laughs> love the way you yeah. make movies. Um, yeah, just the role of animals and mm. the little scene stealers that they are. Why do you put so many dogs in your movie? <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we have three puppies in the movie. Mm. Their name is Juni. Poo-poo, very. Juni is the name of my puppy. She's very sensitive, very delicate, and very, very introverted. <laughs> and the whole upstairs, downstairs kind of theme, of it, which yeah. like literally. Um, mm. Do other stories like that inspire you? Sort of the the, the way, like literally upstairs, downstairs, or Downton Abbey, or yeah, yeah, like that. What, what, um... Actually, during the pre-production, the during the conversation with my production designer, we call we define this movie as a stair movie because so many stairs is very symbolic and very important. And he designed so many different kind of stairs. Actually, I inspired by the. Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, there is a very okay. important stairs. And also the servant, Joseph Lodge. Yeah, mm -hmm. also Yeah, um, obviously in that movie, there are a lot of stories between the, the upstairs and downstairs. And there is another film called Made by Kim Ki-young, 
Housemate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the the foundation that's run, that uh, Martin Scorsese represents uh, restored that film, and there was a rescreening of that film at the Cannes. Okay. And I think I've got uh, a huge influence yes, of those films. Mm. Um, and mentioning the house itself, sort of the set design and the way you mm. shoot it as well is is fascinating. Um, and how did you work with the your cinematographer to frame the way we see the, the literal house? Even during the um, screenplay stage, I had all these blocking lines in my mind quite clearly. And in the wealthy house, uh, this house has a lot of um, secrets and a lot of hidden things. And when one person talks and another person, another person or people, they try to hear it. And people in that house cannot really see each other very clearly, and there are a lot of blocking lines like this. And all these image images were already set during the screenplay, and then I showed it very clearly on the storyboard to my production designer and the art cinematographer. Yeah. Actually, I almost of shot the framing and camera movement already designed based on the storyboard. It's very the final movie is not so different from the original storyboard. So my cinematographer, he focused on the, the writing and the color and yes. texture. The cinematographer was able to focus solely on color and texture. And, um, and he could also express uh, some of the th things that was in his mind through that. But all the rest of the things were already set. Mm. No, it does look like a start, yeah. yeah. And uh, winning the Palm Door, tell us about that. What was that experience like? It still feels very surreal. It still feels like it happened to someone else. Oh, this must be, this film must be good. <laughs> but when I actually arrived in Korea, maybe it's because it was the first time, but the reaction was overwhelming. There are a hundred journalists, people like waiting for me at the airport with their cameras ready. And I felt like, did I win a gold medal at the Olympic or something? But I don't think such phenomena will last for a long time. But I believe that I should continue to maintain my routine, writing a, um, writing a screenplay and shooting and release, screenplay, shooting and release. And I try um, to like, continue that routine. Yeah. yeah. Um, and can you talk about what's next for you? What's next on the I'm preparing two stories. One's an English film, the other is a Korean one. So the English one is about real story that happened recently. It's based on a, the true story. Okay. And the second one is a Korean film. It's uh, about an incident that happens in the middle of um, Seoul. It's quite scary and frightening. Mm -hmm. Maybe it could be horror or thriller. But yeah. Or whatever genre. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're right yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I cannot wait. And um, we'll just finish up. We like to ask our guests what they've been watching lately. Um, someone else's film or either enjoying or disliking. <laughs> Something that um, you've seen lately that has um, intrigued you. At the Cannes, unfortunately, I was not able to watch any films due to my schedule. Sure. And in Sydney, I'm planning to watch a movie called Souvenir. And I had uh, Tinda Swinton's uh, daughter is acting in that. She's not an actress, but she suddenly got into that acting. And I heard that she did a great job. Mm -hmm. So on the 14th, I am going to watch the film at the Sydney Film Festival.
Well, thank you so much, and yeah. I love your company. Thank you. So that was Bong Joon-ho, and he is our second repeat guest on the playlist now. Yeah. Him and Willem Dafoe. And uh, he's a psycho fan. Remind me never to take a shower with him. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And uh, Parasite is out on the 27th of June. All right, now, well, what have you been watching? Fee, what have you been watching? <laughs> hmm, what have I been watching? Yesterday, the movie. You, you watched that yesterday? No, I watched it last week. Okay. Good Lord, let's stop. I uh, Yes, <laughs> another friend of the show, geez, they're all over the place this week, but Danny Boyle has made a new film called Yesterday and this is the one, if you've seen the ads, because there are quite a few, they're all on all over the place. Yeah, but... I, I love these ads. I've been looking forward to this. Oh, then. I, what, what are you trying oh, to tell me, Fee? Uh, then I feel you've seen the movie, but uh, oh. this one is about what if, it's a what if movie, mm. what if one day. You are the only person who remembers the Beatles and everyone else acts like they never existed because somehow through some strange quirk of who knows what because it's never quite explained. Was there a lightning strike? I There's hope a glitch. So. There's something like that. In the yeah. Matrix. Pretty much, yeah. Something happens. Who knows what? Too many details to worry about apparently and all of a sudden you are the only person who remembers the Beatles and happily you are a struggling troubadour just in need of a couple of good songs. Oh, that was convenient. I know. What are the chances? And uh, hey presto, hey Jude even, uh, mm. here's a couple of hundred zingers that are going to set the world on fire and make you the best singer of yours and everyone else's generations. What can possibly go wrong? Well, a <laughs> couple things <laughs> as it happens. Uh, look, it's a great concept. I think it, it's a really exciting premise and I was all happy to watch mm. it. I thought it might be a, a fun, curious oddity of a movie. Mm. Um, you know what, it is that, but then it's not much else beyond that. I think it doesn't really play out the premise very well. Right, because this was written by Richard Curtis. It was written by Richard Curtis. So you'd sort of expect, you know, that kind of fun rom-com world. Mm. Well, that's what you get. And on the rom-com element, that takes up too much of the story. That's kind of my main complaint with it, actually. Hamesh Patel plays Jack, who is the guy who, he's the singer, and Lily James, who is in every other movie at the moment, she's his manager and unrequited love interest. Mm. And the I'm just, in. Yeah, I mean, sure, but no. Their mild flirtation and the, just the, the way that that takes up way too much of the story. Yeah. And it occurred to me, wow, it's been a long time since a song when this happens. So, look, there's good stuff in there. It's, don't overthink it, but it, I just realised how I was kind of bored for a bit of it. Right. Um, Ed Sheeran pops up to make fun of himself a couple of times, which is quite cute. Yeah. Um, and it plays with the idea of, well, if the Beatles have never existed, what else doesn't exist? And he just constantly Wikipedia's things and there's some cute jokes that come up that way and a couple of jokes at Oasis's expense. Um, no, I, I was I was kind of bored, I have to say. Ah. Mm. But um, Himesh Patel, he does sing the songs very well. I mean, the whole thing of the movie is that Long and Winding Road is a magical song no matter who sings it and he, he does – do great renditions of these songs. Yeah. But there's a bit of an emotional scene. Well, you know, it's meant to be the emotional payoff of the film. It just didn't work for me. And I'm not sure that I Want to Hold Your Hand would be a huge hit if it was released today. Ooh. But anyway. Wow. There you go. <laughs> Gauntlet Throne, I don't know. It just, there are some of the incredible Beatles songs that do 
hold up, like like I said, Long and Winding Road, mm. Hey Jude, et cetera, but uh, it assumes all of them would be incredibly successful today. Mm. So Not maybe sure. suspension disbelief, not quite. Well, exactly. I, I couldn't suspend my disbelief. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Because mm. like, uh, I think one of Richard Curtis's recent films about time, I think, like oh, did yeah. a, a nice mix of rom-com with a bit of high concept mm-hmm. playing around with what if scenarios? Yeah, sure. I actually didn't see that one, and I'm not going to seek it out in the strength of yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take your word for it. So anyway, eh, left me cold. But it's curious how many movies about songs and about musicians, or about music, are happening at the moment. I mean, this one is different. It's not the Beatles story, mm. but um, it's a it's kind of riffing on this popularity of back catalogue music. Um, yeah, yeah. So. Does it work as a musical? No. It's it's not a musical in the sense that they don't break into song in scenes, but yeah. it's the story of how good the Beatles music is, I guess. And is it like that there's meant to be a, is he going to get caught out? Like, And that does play into it. Whereas Rocketman is a musical. Yeah. Mamma Mia is multiple musicals. Bohemian Rhapsody is not a good film. But it <laughs> is a movie about musicians and is showcasing the work of Queen. There just seems to be something in the air at the moment where it's uh, kind of all the classic hits, bands and musicians are the subject of movies and, yeah, I don't know, there's curiosity. Yeah. And I'm assuming if you're not a Beatles fan then don't go anywhere near it. Uh, well, yeah, if you don't like them then <laughs> there's a lot of them in this, yeah. <laughs> ben, what have you been watching? So I checked out the feature documentary The Last Quarter about the career of Adam Goods Ah, at the Sydney Film Festival. And, you know, it was uh, hugely successful, the Sydney Film Festival, all the screenings sold out. They put on a couple of extra screenings. They all sold out as well. Mm. And I can see why. It's a very, very moving experience to watch. It's, It's told all through archive footage of those last few years of his career. Mm. So it's sort of told in that kind of Senna style. Yeah, Um, Senna and Amy and that. Yeah, yeah. and sort of so really putting you in the moment of his life, of someone who's lived in the public eye and there's obviously so much material to work from that that the directory and Darling has um, pulled together to shape this film. Mm. So basically you're seeing his career from the point at which a 13-year-old girl in the audience called him an ape mm. and he responded very in a very dignified mm. way to that but it created a, a bit of an uproar between those who wanted to rid the game of racism amongst fans and those who thought that Adam Goods was taking too much of a stand and, and rocking the boat and in a way speaking above his station. And yeah. and so what eventuated, which AFL fans will know and actually, you know, Australians will be aware of, is that he began to be booed at almost every time he had the ball, every time the Sydney Swans played. Mm. And this happened all through the year 2014 while he was Australian of the Year when he, in the Indigenous round, did a traditional dance as a celebration that created further furor and what the film really successfully does is give you an understanding and this this sort of for me being someone who you know I enjoy sports but I, I'm not a follower of the AFL mm. so even though I was aware of the story 
I wasn't aware of how intense this actually would have been. And and what you really get a fantastic sense from the film is what that would have felt like. But then beyond that, the film does a really great job picking up all the commentary around it. Well, yeah, that's So, you know, you have the Alan Joneses and the Andrew Bolts and the conservative commentators. And the Eddie Maguires. And Eddie Maguire is, you know, really sort of someone who I think sort of tries to play the part of someone who is a supporter of the Indigenous game and yet continually reads the room in the wrong way. And there's, I think actually some of the most insidious comments are made by those people who um, aren't necessarily taking a stand but but think that by taking a, a kind of moderate position that they can defend those people who are doing the booing. Right, yeah. So what you get is a, a real portrait of racism within mm-hmm. Australia and it's, it's really a, a tragic story about someone who is, you know, at the top of their field and has so much to give, he's such an articulate man, very, very intelligent man, and yet those who were in senior positions and positions of power just didn't do enough to address the long-running racism that was occurring within the AFL. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful that this film is getting noticed and that mm. it had multiple sessions, as you mentioned, sold-out sessions at the Sydney Film Festival. And on the strength of the film's premiere and the reception to it at the, at the Sydney Film Festival, the AFL and all clubs issued a belated and extremely belated and unconditional apology to Adam Goods. Yeah, it's appalling that it took a documentary to reflect what happened at the time for people to see the mistakes that were made back then. Yeah, it's a really important documentary, I think. Mm. It's having that impact now and it will have a a theatrical release later in the year Mm -hmm. and uh, Channel 10 have announced that they've brought it to air on TV. So I think that actually I think a lot of people will see this and it deserves to be seen by a lot of people because it confronts these issues head on that that we as a country have with the way that we relate to um, Indigenous Australians. And I think that it can only help foster those conversations about Mm. what can we do differently. Mm. Because it's only five years ago. It's a documentary about events that took place five years ago. So Yeah. yeah, it's alarming. And as you say, it's all archival material, but was Adam Goods involved in this film at all? He wasn't, and I think that he has made a very deliberate choice that he isn't involved in any media anymore. Mm. He's just decided to fully step back from that. So Stan Grant is also making a feature documentary for the ABC that will premiere at the Melbourne Film Festival, also about Adam Goods. Mm. It's um, opening the it's opening myth, actually. Yeah, mm. and Adam Goods also hasn't been involved in that one either. So his voice is very present, but it is through those press conferences and sort of him being asked to constantly justify his position. Mm. He's asked in one press interview about whether he's contributing to Australia being a more divisive place. (laughs) And, I mean, really... Who asks that, do you remember? No, No. you don't see the journalist. Mm -hmm. Well, it would be no. (laughs) (laughs) The answer is no to that question. Mm. You see the divisiveness that is happening and he's trying to heal the situation. Yeah. Okay, well, as as you say, the final quarter will have a cinema release later in the year. We'll give a mention when when it is coming out into cinemas. Great. So people should catch it. Yeah. 
Well, that's it for our show. Make sure you subscribe to SBS The Playlist wherever you get your podcasts. That give us lots of stars, leave a nice review. It helps people find the show. If you want to get in touch, you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at SBS Movies. I'm on Twitter at Ben Nguyen TV. New handle. Yeah. You changed it. I did <laughs> because I didn't want to say underscore anymore. Fair enough. Good call. And I'm on Twitter at Anything But Fifi. The playlist is produced by Jeremy Wilmot. Until next week. Thanks for listening. Listener.